good evening to all this is abhivardhan from gla for global hint here we have another interesting episode for global hint and i think the rest of the panelists will be joining shortly uh, so we have for now uh, saurabh samir and surya uh, tonight we are going to discuss about a very tumultuous week that the mea of the government of india had uh, some very important summits some very interesting developments on the india's global approach in terms of diplomacy and economics and also about uh, the 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 word of the word which is the indo pacific so uh, uh, this will be a very specific talk in the sense that to understand the the significance of these summits and the kind of development which have come in i would also like the viewers to go to i think news 18 where surya had recently published a very interesting article on Uh, how the quad has somehow agreed that you know what the indo-russian ties have some significance to boost the quad and uh, uh, i would like to uh, state that after reading that article i related it with my own uh, funny theory that if uh, trump would have stayed and would have thought in a sane way then maybe he could have thought for us russia approachment or furthering the indo-pacific agenda but again that's a funny assumption but i'm not getting into it so let's begin with the discussion and i'll first give the floor to saurabh to give a simple brief in 2 to 3 minutes about what has happened in this week so that the viewers get an insight and then we'll directly go ahead with the questions i think the rest of the panelists will be joining in a while and uh, if the viewers would like to ask questions please feel free to do so so saurabh over to you uh, thank you abhivardhan so i mean the three big things are you know like the ongoing russia ukraine crisis conflict war choose how you want to say then the the india japan summit and then the recent visit by the chinese foreign minister wang yi so i mean the things are unfolding regarding russia and ukraine ukraine seems to be holding uh russia seems to be increasing its offensive and i think given the like cloud of information/misinformation like not really sure you know like what is happening i think unless you are too deeply involved in that uh, in that area but it seems that like, like russia is increasing its control of you know at least the, the port city of mariupol i think so that's that's happening in terms of the very interesting visit by the japanese uh, pm uh i think the agreement signed were like like quite quite important especially the like billions of dollars of of investment that J- japan has uh, agreed uh, in india i think through its companies and through loans so that uh, so that's uh, important and then the the most i, I would say interesting aspect is wangi's visit yesterday and how he was or wasn't received uh, uh, like in india and uh, how were the discussions with uh em jashanka and especially the fact that you know the mea felt it was prudent to do a press conference or at least a press briefing right after wangi left that's that's unique because i think we, have, we haven't seen that happen uh that frequently it's it's usually the spokespersons who do the briefing so it is very significant that maybe india was trying to set the the tone of you know what was being discussed before china would have the opportunity to set the narrative so yeah that's kind of i think the brief overview great so let's uh, come on the quad first and then we'll discuss about 
other developments related to Russia, Ukraine, and others, and how has India created its own share of leverage? So, uh, my question is to Akshob. Hi, Akshob, welcome. And the question which I have is uh, we have seen that the Australian ambassador in India, I think, if I'm correct, has recently said that um, uh, the Quad understands India's position on Ukraine Russia crisis. And somehow that's something, it's a very good indication in terms of how the Quad members look at India's role in this grouping. So, how do you see this development per se, as far as we know, and you also know, how uh, in, in the whole region? But as America and Europe, how have the commentators described on India's position? And uh, so in that regard, how do you see this? Yeah. So fundamentally, look, nothing changes as far as the India-US relationship goes in this aspect. It's important to bifurcate what uh, said on Capitol Hill and was what the administration is saying, right? I mean, uh, Capitol Hill is, yes, there are lawmakers there and there are people who are part of various committees, including Foreign House Affairs Committee, um, and they do have gravitas, but that doesn't directly translate to what the administration is saying. Right? The administration hasn't said anything um, to the extent of anything that would be termed as excoriation or condemnation of that sort. And uh, fundamentally, uh, because that's very well codified how India approaches its foreign policy, and that's that's known. Um, so I, I, I think you have to understand that in two ways, right? Congressmen will speak for the because they have constituency to appease to, they have their own policy, they have their own view minds, um, or because the nature of the Russia-Ukraine uh, escalation has been unprecedented in some ways, right? I mean, let's, uh, you know, it's 2022, and in some ways this looks like 1939 with some sort of invasion here. So whether, without getting into that minutiae, so there is a level of unprecedentedness towards it that has brought out statements, right? Now, that's that's the first part. The second part is if you just look at again comments that come from either the White House uh, spokesperson Jen Psaki, the State Department spokesperson Ned Price, it, it's fundamentally been we understand India's position. It's made different from ours, and that's that's if you go back to I mean in in the bilateral history, that's always been different. Even when India and US signed the civil nuclear deal around 2005 2006, uh, you know President Bush was being played by fiddled by. President Musharraf in Pakistan. So India always understood that with a bifurcation of interests as well. And, you know, you may sign the civil nuclear deal with India and then three years later, Pakistan gets the biggest aid package from the United States. So it's not, it's never, nothing is based on mutual exclusivity. So I think the United States understands that. Um, I mean, look, Biden's comment again, it may have been glib, may have been flippant, but I, I wouldn't read too much into that somewhat shaky comment. It's off the cuff, maybe not off the cuff, but it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't translate to policy. That's the important thing. Um, fundamentally, from the Japanese perspective or the Australian perspective, the other two quad members, they've understood that perspective as well. And don't forget, like well, the first time when the, the quad took off or didn't take off, it's Australia was very uh, more reticent about uh, condemning China because Kevin Rudd was a prime minister then and Kevin Rudd is a fluent Mandarin speaker. And, and Australia was very dependent on China for its commodities trade because, uh, you know, while the world was collapsing in 2008, uh, Australia, China's boom had begun and uh, China's uh, manufacturing boom. China's building up of cities was largely reliant on trade with Australia. Um, so um, countries inherently approach it from their own perspective. The Quad is not an abandonment of any foreign policy. It's mutual synergy in one particular region, which is the Indo-Pacific. And uh, while Russia, Ukraine, because the unprecedented nature of the scale is dominating discourse. But last we checked, the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov do not fall in the Indo-Pacific. So it technically should and shouldn't at the same time be discussed. Um, yeah, and last but not least is uh, the perspective of even with India and Russia, right? Even though we, we just had the first just two plus two in December, 
uh, it's not just uh, people just look at it as a very complete transaction. It's not just a military perspective, right? It's not just, oh, we get weapons from here. And, you know, uh, there's, there's talk of some congressman saying that, you know, we get Lockheed and Boeing to substitute everything and we get more oil from the United States and Russia. It's this, it's fundamentally, it goes a lot beyond that, right? There's uh, what we call hesitation of history. Uh, Indian foreign policy is also very cognizant of history in the sense that, and, and it's not a sense of repayment of dues like an Anister, but it's a fact that the USSR has been a very steady, stable uh, P5 vote for India in the past. That that place today may be a little more France, but that's fundamentally been that case. There's also been a sense of, you know, joint science and technology thing. I mean, a lot of, I mean, if you can even go into small cultural aspects. For example, India today owes a lot of its grandmaster chess success to the Russian cultural centers that were first set up in Chennai, uh, right? I mean, small things like that, right, which people may not have remembered. Like, there is... The fact that, you know, from 49 to 70s until the Americans had Bobby Fischer was pretty much the Soviets dominating in chess. And a lot of, like, so India is very cognizant of a lot of that in the past. And fundamentally, an abstention is not a vote for Russia. That's what India made very clear. An abstention is a choice. It's not pusillanimous. It is calculated. And it's based on the fact that it's diplomacy over diatribe that's chosen. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I think because what's happened, because of the nature of this conflict being unprecedented, there is this thing of trying to find clutch straws, if you will, on some of the arguments. So I'll just leave it there for now, and then we can come back to it. Sure. Uh, Suri, I would like to add on this, because uh, I think, uh, as I had referred your article, of course, um, how do you see uh, this development? And I think uh, you can emphasize on the economic sphere also, because of the impact of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, we'll discuss some aspects of it, including how India is collaborating with the EU. But uh, for now, how do you see uh, the development? And of course, you can give a fo- uh, give a good follow up to Akshop's comments. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's quite important to look at uh, you know the actual tangible outcomes versus what you see in the media. And and I think that they've been at odds to it with each other to some extent because, um, as you mentioned, the the you know, the, the Australian High Commissioner to India had said that the Quad members are on board with what India's position is. They understand our position versus, uh, you know, the context of, of Russia and Ukraine. So I don't think that, um, you know, the, the media reports and the speculation by think tanks, I think that's that you have to leave that aside for a second and look at really what this means on the ground for, um, especially in the Indian context, what it means for its economic um, strength. In, 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 in the middle of this conflict. You see specifically, and I'd like to talk about the natural resources side here, um, you know, Ch- China going out there to, to perhaps expand its, um, its, its access to Russian energy, not just, uh, not just energy, but also dry bulk commodities and metals. So uh, this can really support their economy in many ways and, and make it more competitive versus most uh, manufacturers around the world. Um, at the same time, you see the U.S. cutting tariffs on uh, on Russian, on sorry, on Chinese finished goods. Sixty-four percent, if I believe, of, of Chinese goods which were attracting tariffs are no longer going to attract those those Trump era tariffs. Uh, but those goods, in many ways, are 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 produced using some in some part uh, Russian energy. So it it's it's a the sanctions are, I think, a little um, uh, they sound they're very it's a sledgehammer style sort of sanctions, which which the U.S. themselves are not really going to lose anything from because they're energy independent. 
A, and B, they're cutting t tariffs on Chinese goods, which are produced using, to some extent, using Russian energy. So, and Russia and China is not playing ball on, on, on American sanctions. So there's a degree of hypocrisy here, right? And I think that um, uh, to expect India to go out there and, and, and cut ties with Russia, for, obviously that was not expected, but to, to kind of really decouple economically, I think that that, that just doesn't make sense. Um, in this context, when you look at the Quad, uh, and, and its lo longer-term objectives, we have to remember that a stronger India is actually essential for um, for maintaining security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, a militarily and economically weakened India, uh, and you know, when you look at an economically weakened India, there could be political weakness in India as well. So, you know, a lot of these things kind of go together. If if this happens, you, the Quad really t will suffer. Um, the longer-term problems that exist to the, in the Indo-Pacific, challenges to the rule, rules-based order, um, that those will not be addressed. So we already know what it took for China to leapfrog other countries because they had an advantage in information about COVID. So they kind of knew things in advance, and they managed to still grow in a year when the rest of the world was falling behind. Now that that little bit of acceleration has actually given them a significant edge in the Indo-Pacific compared to pre-COVID, the pre-COVID era, right? So you can't let that happen with India now. If it falls behind and it grows, it does not grow this year. I mean, you're you're, you're going to have years, th three years, four years of, of of economic distress in a country which should be eventually challenging China at some point, uh, maybe in the long term, but but at least in the short term, being able to 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 stave off some of the threats that exist. So um, a weakened India, which, which kind of will, will be weakened if there's high inflation and very low uh, industrial productivity competitiveness versus uh, China, would really serve the U.S. also and, and Europe in the long term a very a, a bad it, – it won't serve them well, right? I, I just don't see how that can happen. I think there's a very strong case for India to deepen its relationship with Russia. Another very interesting point. Um, it sounds counterintuitive, but – the more oil that China and India buy from Russia, the lower the inflation in the West, because they they don't have to pull the barrels from other countries. Would they are not they don't have to compete with with Europe for those barrels. So it is kind of counterintuitive, but in fact, buying the buying Russian energy will actually help the West. So all in all, uh, if you look at it, this is this is not a bad bad outcome. But, you know, here really the, the question is, how much pain can the West really take um, politically, economically, and therefore politically uh, to kind of outmuscle Russia and, and and kind of defang it? Right? I, I think that it's it's very, uh, there's a tipping point. The, the Germans actually came out and said very clearly that if we continue with this, if we don't uh, import Russian oil and gas, we can really end up in poverty and there could be mass social unrest. I mean, this applies to other countries as well, right? Which which are dependent on, on Russian energy. So I'm not saying that India is dependent on them, but I'm saying that other countries that are will, can, will, will face civil, similar problems. So there are limits of sanctions, clearly. And um, you're getting to, you know, an environment of a stalemate potentially at some point, I think. And... Uh, there are longer-term risks that exist even in Europe. The longer this crisis draws out, and 
if there happens to be an insurgency in Ukraine, an Afghanistan-style insurgency, this will be very detrimental to Europe's longer-term security. Uh, not just security, but their economy as well. Um, you can't have, you already have the risk of weapons floating back into Western Europe, the ones that have gone in, organized crime will increase, human trafficking will increase. These are problems which we are, which nobody really is talking about because they're kind of the secondary problems. We don't need to, we have to consider, we have to be concerned about the refugees who are, who, are, who are moving in, of course, absolutely. But beyond that, I think that there are some real big challenges that, that, are put, that Europe will have to face. On top of that, they're printing money to, to kind of attract, to, 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 to basically finance their gas purchases from other parts of the world. They're going to be buying gas from the U.S. The U.S. stands to benefit um, by nearly four, $500 billion almost from natural gas sales into Europe. You look at the stock price of any energy exporter from the U.S. It's gone through the roof. Why? Because Europe has to buy from them now. Look at defense companies, the stock price of all defense companies in the U.S. gone through the roof. Why? Because Europe has to buy from them now. This is America's great power play. They're, not, they're going to come out relatively unscathed, at least in the short term, because they're actually going to come out stronger because they're going to suck Europe dry. And I'm, I'm using this term very, you know, I, I'm, it's a harsh way to look at it, but that's exactly what they're doing. And they're doing it to consolidate their economic and military sphere of influence. They're not concerned whether rampant inflation destroys the uh, parts of, of the European economy or makes sure that Europe kind of stays at a very at a low structurally lower level of economic prosperity. They're not interested in that. What they're interested in is consolidating power versus Russia and the, and the East in general. In this context, India fits in where. You know, it's it's a it, it's kind of like a, a area of interest for the West. That's, I would say, probably that's about it, which they would like on their side. And, um, but I think what India is doing anyway is, is kind of managing both sides. And I think that the way that they're doing it, their strategic autonomy is actually going to benefit both parties, which is quite an interesting position to be in. I don't think it's really being stuck between a rock and a hard place. I think it's, it's, it's slightly better than that. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, to discuss more of the European stuff because there, there are a lot of things that I think will happen out here in the long term. Now, I I completely uh, appreciate this. I think actually remarks by both Akshab and Surya. So, um, sorry about like, I'll now come to you and maybe Samir can also jump in. So, uh, we know that India is a middle power by all means. And as a middle power, it has to look has how it will find its way anyways. And the analogy with Surya makes is quite interesting about how Indo-Russian studies will help the Quad, help uh, help US, help Europe in that sense. So um, I don't know if I'm correct on this, but you can correct me and the rest of the panelists also. If there are countries which have this kind of similar position like India in any part of the world, that's a different question altogether. Because uh, we all know that uh, geopolitical and other kind of binaries are created or they exist due to a clash of interests and others. And it's a very basic one-on-one understanding of IR. But uh, um, that's one question out of curiosity. And the second one, which I have for you is, um, how does how should uh, India look at it from a bit of a long-term perspective in the sense that 
while this hedging is going on and a sense of i would say perpetuation is there um do you look at the engagement between india and eu recently minister jashankar had an engagement with the european union on data data protection and other technological aspects and some if wish wishes can jump in and also uh in uh, india and greece had an engagement which means that the minister of uh, foreign minister of greece had met the foreign minister which is eam of india so even some european actors i think even uh, the, the austrian minister i think Aust- austrian foreign minister also came to india recently so these developments have happened and we'll pivot to europe in a bit but how do you see them fa- and and then we can uh, uh, get back to uh, the us question afterwards so here you go um i would say that i mean let's just i mean the world is in flux you know like this this nothing certain right now all the alignments realignments you know all is being reanalyzed so we already see a lot of you know like changes happening you have like the west asian or what we call like or what the us calls middle east there's a lot of realignment you know the abraham accords led to you know like reprochment between like some arab countries and israel and now the at least visible bonhomme between uae and israel is 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 off the charts uh we we saw that the uae uae sorry israel uh, like was kind mm-hmm. of asking the us to sell like jets to egypt so uh so that's one area and then i think all i mean india is the swing power or a the middle power also because of its size so there is no other country like india except china you know in terms of size but we you have asean as a swing uh like swing state or, or like a, like a region that can go either way depending on the geopolitics of of the region or the day you know you have central asia with now russia becoming like more weak uh, we don't know how these sanctions will bite we don't know how long the pain is going to last how uh, strongly can russia maintain its sphere of sphere of influence in central asia remains to be seen you know like will china swoop in or will the west uh, try to fill the gap or would india with the help of you know some other countries fill in the gap and uh, you know like given that no country in africa or in south america also sanctioned uh, russia shows that you know like like there is no unanimity on anything or even like region wise so i think my my idea uh, would be that countries are trying to figure out you know where they stand i mean the two, the two poles are us and china and the larger part being like us as like the west led group and china is like the new emerging power so at least the role for india i i see is that i think india would find its it like, would find it helpful to be on the side of the west as long as it tries to like the main aim of the west or the us remains that to to counter china if the current situation in europe uh you know like uh, misleads uh, uh, the the word being like if it leads us and the eu to you know refocus on russia then i think we have much less humility of the west or being close to usa because our primary concern is china and 
at, at least in terms of uh, you know like regional dynamic dynamics you know how the alignments are changing we we also see you know like the increasing like contacts between pakistan and russia you know like so everybody is hedging all the old partners are also hedging india has you know like maintained neutrality kind of and it's seeing its own interest but it is slightly more critical of russia than it was before so you know because i think we have a lot more at, at stake with the west uh, at least in terms of current geopolitics so i mean that's kind of like my overview great so uh, now let's come back to europe and we'll discuss europe but of course as i had said we'll discuss the us also wherever now uh, i remember uh, that uh, the state department uh, spokesperson ned price had very clearly stated that india is a partner uh, for uh, that i think um i think they had said it for themselves i it, i can't remember right now but i think they had said that for uh, for india the us is a partner of choice if that's exactly what he, he had said and this uh, is a very interesting remark because i think uh, victoria newland and donald lu had just visited on behalf of the us government um talking less about victoria newland considering her developments and her statements in the us senate but more on uh, donald lu i think one thing we see is that uh, as uh, akshay points out about the congressman and woman i think uh, the interesting part which i found was that the way the nuance existed in the state department officials as, as far as engagement with india is concerned because they had asked those kind of questions which if anyone watches right now on social media such as youtube and others will say you know what oh these are very uh, very weird questions and so so forth in that sense or there's something which are very uh, like they're just the tip of the iceberg they're not the iceberg in that sense but still uh, the fact that the governments have a sense of nuance to engage in a long sense is very interesting so i think one uh, thing which is now becoming clear is that while the trajectory of cooperation of the quad members will increase which is anyways going to happen the quad is more in that consideration of whether, whether it's critical tech whether it is climate change whether it is r&d and others i think uh, we are going to see much more humble collaboration although recently australia had invested i if i'm correct uh, in indian rupees if i'm saying 1500 crores recently in india of course they are not much as far as because if you compare it with even a proper startup which is earned in india its revenue and all of that stuff but that's a different issue altogether so i think indo australian cooperation is also on a rise i think prime minister modi and uh, prime minister morrison had a summit virtually so i'm bringing samir on to the panel in the sense to ask that when it comes to technology the one thing which we generally see is that all of these kind of quote unquote crises whether it is a pandemic whether it is a kind of uh, a conflict of international importance or any kind of quote unquote war or situation which affects other areas for example africa's dependence on russian uh, russian food grains and other things and also when it comes to the whole crisis related to gas prices right so we see that interdependencies exist now in the domain of technology i would say uh, emerging technologies and both critical technologies how do you see india creating its own way because um 
uh this is something which we have started discussing and already working on it whether it is semiconductors or whether it is space or whether it is even investing in ai how do you look at the contribution of the crisis and the current developments which have happened in this week in the sense to say that you know what india has thought out new initiatives and new ideas to work its way because it's india's it's it's very much in india's interest to get global cooperation from the west and other actors as much as possible that's what india tries to foster in even with west asian countries for example so how do you see it and then i think maybe akshob and surya can add up yeah so uh, i think we need to look at it from a very broader perspective i think uh, i just wanted to add this point that if you look at india's own neighborhood which is quite unstable in the sense you have military dictatorships in some countries then you have uh, china so i think i'm sure there will be some kind of a thinking also in the west that if india were to go down economically at this point in time or for that matter even politically i think it's not going to be a good thing for the region in the entire in the indo pacific region in the entirety and secondly also the fact that it's not only the quad that is primarily working on these issues there is also the new quad that is coming up the west asia quad so there are a string of new you know alliances and relationships that are coming up in the region so i am pretty sure there is going to be a balancing act looking at the long run so i think uh, we have uh, just signed an fta with uae we are soon going to uh, you know uh, initiate one with uh, israelis so uh, i in that sense i am sure there is going to be a lot of uh, good things for india uh, because especially with israel if you are talking uh, an fta then i'm sure because uh, israel is a technology hub a startup hub there is going to be a lot of discussions relating to these areas secondly if you look at uh, the points that you raised regarding india's own domestic uh, you know uh, how can i say uh, initiatives regarding setting up semiconductor industry or whatever so to be very honest i am not very optimistic because there are a lot of uh, inherently uh, major challenges within the country that we face as far as setting up industries like the semiconductors are concerned because uh, even though there is some kind of an expertise in india in terms of semiconductors and stuff uh, there are a lot of other factors that need to be plugged in like where are you going to bring in all the silicon let's say for the semiconductor industry if you are like planning to have it in the next 5 years of 300 billion dollars of exports then you need at least 50 billion dollars or something like that of you know silicon in india in order to have your ecosystem ready so the amount of funding domestically in my opinion is not enough and secondly uh, there if you look at quantum technologies uh, for that matter uh, it was in 2020 budget if i if my memory serves me well that the quantum uh, mission of india was uh, announced but unfortunately there has been not much funding in that sense so there are a lot of issues that need to be tackled with uh, i think we are lagging behind technologically and uh, of course one way is to partnerships but at the end of the day i think uh, if we really have to become self reliant i think we need to become technologically self reliant we are also seeing uh, during this uh, war the kind of misinformation on western platforms and you know western platforms uh, themselves big tech or for that matter even spacex you know becoming an arm of the china uh, the american government right so these are some major major issues that india has to really uh, look at i think uh, our private sector needs to be really encouraged in that sense so i think 
there needs to be a slew of initiatives tax reforms labor uh, law reforms so i think these are the primary factors that india should really look at before you know uh, getting into uh, or venturing into deals that might eventually be detrimental to our cause so that is where i just make is thanks yeah okay so that's an interesting Just add add yeah. Just uh, please, super please, quick please. on this. Um, there was a uh, report that came out. I think that they're kind of in the in a very critical phase in India right now on um, on the semiconductor uh, project. Um, they've got uh, I think three companies bidding for. Um, uh, I, let me just check what that was. It was it was for the the silicon part of it, and then there was another part which was that was just for the silicon fabrication, and. Um, I think here. Let me just check. Uh, yeah, um, and um, uh, they've got uh, three for um, uh, three for silicon fabs and two for display fabs. Um, and I think that only about one percent of the total market right now, with their eight billion dollar package that they they, they want to deploy. Um, it's a start. If they can get it off the ground, I think that it can meet some of the domestic requirements at least. um and i think that in some ways um that's uh, in the initial stages i think that's probably enough to make sure that it it safeguards some of the you know national security interests i think at that level right for some of the defense projects that we're running for some of the you know any any project that's related to national security if we can procure um uh, domestically i think that would be great um and obviously there's a larger commercial angle to it and i think that 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 will develop organically as things move ahead but it needs to get off the the blocks in the beginning and and i think that has to be government subsidized it needs to be government supported and then you kind of start reaping the rewards down the line um the very idea in 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 india that look you know you you you're not willing to spend up front for longer term returns i think that's something that in some ways this government one of the areas where they've been strong in is is kind of being willing to invest up front for longer term returns whether it's infrastructure for example one of the ways they they're going about doing it with roads and ports um this is with the idea that it you know it it has a deflationary impact domestically in the long run um it improves efficiencies it improves trade it improves accessibility of businesses to points of export um it also just it it just harmonizes the domestic market as well but also links up india to the to the world you're able to tap domestic low, high purchasing power uh, in 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 the hinterland especially with um uh, with industries which can tap that and then kind of export out to 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 the rest of the world now the capabilities that those industries actually have technologically that has to be ramped up but what you're seeing is that this year we've had record exports from india and there has been a significant addition in in there's been significant value addition in in certain sectors of of their of the exports this year and it's it's a quantum leap from last year now um it they may be small additional sort of value additions that the, you know things that have been added on but i i don't think it's um it's a step back it's actually a step forward right so the country's making the right moves um it's it's also very difficult i think that uh to actually see the needle move on you know on a on an aggregate sales level the revenue level because it actually just uh the, the process of value addition takes time to kind of to kind of consolidate into 
um, what we really call economies of scale, where you can have a very large, um, uh, a large footprint in, in the global market of finished goods. It takes time. The Chinese took nearly 30 years to get there, 20 years, you'd say, at least to get to this point. Um, and it accelerated after they joined the WTO in 2001. Uh, for India, I think they need to find select areas and kind of work on those and dominate those industries globally. And especially at least in the Indo-Pacific, because that's where they need stability the greatest. Um, you take a look at some of the other areas the Quad, I think, should should be focusing on is um, uh, the electric vehicle space and the green energy revolution that we're seeing globally. You're seeing very high energy prices, obviously. Some part of it is due to the, the crisis in Ukraine. But a lot of it, a lot of the inflation actually came before, and it was partly Federal Reserve driven, partly underinvestment, uh, in, due to underinvestment in the the energy space, um, because it was considered a dirty fossil fuel, so they didn't want to invest in oil and gas. So there, there is a significant pressure to kind of move into electric vehicles. Now, um, I think that the PLI scheme for batteries, especially, is a very good move in this direction because um, if you're able to to manufacture these at home, that's fantastic. But what, what's very important in electronic vehicle supply chains is the the actual natural resources that feed into all of this. And right now, 80% of all critical metals and rare earths are controlled by China. Now, this cannot persist if you want to create a stable ecosystem for yourself in, 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 in India, or even if the U.S. wants to create it, they can't, they can't possibly go down this route. One of the reasons why even Trump talked about buying uh, out uh, Greenland was for this purpose, right? Because it, it is there within the American strategic thought that they need to secure themselves in this space. Natural resource and energy security will be of, it came out in The Economist, but, you know, I, I work in this industry. I've been seeing this for a few years now. That's pressure building on countries to to make sure that they, they, they secure themselves. It becomes exceptionally important now in a, in a more fractured world where China can access a lot of energy at, a, at cheaper rates from, from Russia. And they also control large parts of the electric vehicle supply chain, right from the raw materials to the production. Um, and there's one element, which I think I've mentioned in one of the previous discussions we've had, Abhivardhan, was um, the, uh, the this deep ocean mission. This it's, So they're going out there to, to really see what they can extract from the seafloor, um, from the seabed. They, these are uh, high-density uh, nodules where they, they're able to get a lot of the, the, the critical metals required for battery manufacturing. Now, with... What, what India has access to in the Indian Ocean region itself under its exclusive economic zones, it can actually um, supply a lot of what is necessary for its industries to build out as batteries. Now, you, I, I don't know how much would be exported, but I know for a fact that it would be it would go a long way to at least secure domestic requirements. Um, and I think that really has to be the focus. All countries are looking inwards. The U.S. is having a, a manufacture in America or make in America sort of thing. I mean, this is the exact same thing, which is like a make in India in a day, obviously, for, for them. Um, I know when we talked about Atmanirbhar Bharat, there were a lot of think tanks out there, American think tanks, who, which were talking about it as a, uh, quite derisively and saying that this is like a, a move inwards and it's, it's not really good. You're not being embedded in the globalized system. But globalism, in many ways, has already you know, taken a body blow with this war. 
So uh, a country like India has to actually focus on its domestic capabilities. It also, on top of this, that you know, once you develop your some domestic capabilities, you can export and you can stabilize supply chains for other countries, and make sure that you can be the you can replace China in some sectors. And I think that is really where the the the, the where India's interests should lie. Now, how much, to what extent, are the Quad members really interested in this? I'd say that Japan, to some extent, is. Um, Australia is now, given given the the change in government um, and 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 also the the sort of uh, retribution that China gave to them. I think that they they kind of realize where they stand. And then on top, but I don't think that the U.S. is fully on board. Uh, and Akshov, you might be able to give more insight into this. I just don't think that they're willing to decouple from China. And I think this is a real concern for India. And given these concerns. And they they should be looking out just for themselves because one looking out for themselves actually helps the quad in the long run. If countries decide to kind of really decouple from China, and secondly, if they look out for themselves, they just simply look out for themselves, and it helps their own. It helps India themselves. So I think that that that's really where things stand at the moment. And and when when you look at these moves into new new sectors, the quantum mission, for example, it was like one point one billion dollars or so. And I, I, I think that, you know, I've written about this about a year and a half ago. I was quite excited about it. I really thought this can this can drive India forward. But the money is not there anymore, right? You, and if you have a weakened India that's struggling with its fiscal deficit, that's investing in infrastructure, and that's really the focus of the government, these kind of fall along the wayside and you're not able to pick them up. You, this, is just, this is not acceptable, right? It's not acceptable to the government. Therefore, it has to look out for make, making sure that its fiscal deficit does not blow out of proportion. It, it kind of takes care of its, its financial needs in the short term, and it's able to finance these critical projects, which will take India at least to a competitive level versus China, and also be able to engage with the world in a way that it can stabilize supply chains and make sure that, that, that there is a hedge for the world. Um, there's one more element, which is slightly different, which I wanted to mention. I talked about it in my article. Um, Russia moving too close into the into the Chinese orbit is not something that is good for the quad. The, the, the closer it goes, the more the higher the likelihood that China will use Russia in ways which the West will not be happy with, in ways that we have not even we, we may not even expect at the moment. Um, both in the Western theater in, in the Atlantic and in the Pacific theaters. That's really not the place where where the West would like to see themselves. And then they, they don't, so when I, I think it was you um, uh, sort of who was talking about like hedging and uh, you know hedging the risks. That's really what Russia what 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 Russia would like to see. In some ways, they've done this in the Middle East. They've got a few countries together that 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 are willing to kind of play Moscow off um, Washington. But India plays an even larger role because it, of its deep defense ties with 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 Russia. Um, Russia would be more than happy to keep arming India as much as possible and working on joint ventures as as India would really like to indigenize more things. But that really is a counterbalance to China. So China does not feel that it can extract its pound of flesh from Russia every single time. So I don't think anyone in Moscow would want to make make their country a vassal state of of China. So India plays a role here in doing this. 
everybody in the West is just looking at Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And that's really just very short-termist. That crisis will, it may drag on it or it may blow over this year. But that crisis will, it's not the only crisis that's going to exist. The world is going to continue for, you have to look at it for from a 10 to 20 year horizon. But does the U.S. domestically, do they have the capability of looking 10, 20, 15 years, 20 years down the, down the road? I think that they're, they're really struggling domestically and on the political front because they really need to just look at short-term, achieving short-term objectives to placate their, their, their domestic audience. Um, it's very interesting because that was the position that India has been in for very long, right? And I think that the domestic elections and the national elections that we have seen have given the government a little bit more leeway to look longer term. In the U.S., you've seen the reverse. There, you know, there's there's too many political changes domestically, which kind of put pressure, whichever government there is, to kind of toe a particular line which suits their lo- their local audience. And that has ramifications for the the Indo-Pacific economic and security architecture in the long run. So um, the only thing they did know this time, and I just want to conclude on this, was that they need to consolidate their sphere of influence. And they did it. It, it, in, a, in a very brutal fashion, they did it by seizing assets, central bank assets, individuals' assets. They went out there and they said, you know what? We don't care about due process anymore. We're going to do what we need to do to curtail Russia and hurt them where, you know, hit them where it hurts. But that they have, they're not taking into account the problems that this sort of behavior will have for the long term in terms of outwards and inve- outward investment from China and India potentially in the future in the West. Why would an Indian company want to go out there? There was a very interesting, uh, you know, move by the um, uh, uh, by the by the government not to allow companies to get listed, you know, domestic companies to get listed overseas. Why? It came at a very interesting time. Um, I'm I, I don't think that that the Indian government is is worried that they're going to seize our seize Indian assets overseas right now, but. Of course, everyone would be thinking that look, this can happen, and they can draw everything down to zero. And this is tail risk that has been added into every company's financial models now. That there's a 0.1% chance that the valuation of anything that we have can go down to zero. We can get nationalized overseas. Is this is this good good business? Is this good economics? No. But it these these core principles were sacrificed for geopolitical hegemony to ensure geopolitical hegemony by the U.S. overseas, and um, they need to do a lot to kind of turn this, especially in the minds of Indians, so that they need to come out and say, we're going to invest in India. Here's 40, 50 billion. Japanese are doing far more than the Americans. Right? What, why, why is that happening? Yeah, the Americans have even more money, but they should be going out there and saying, look, here's you know, $50 billion for this particular industry. We're going to set up our battery manufacturing here in India. Simple, right? We're going, to, we're going to get all our stuff made here and export it to the U.S. But they want to go into their own manufacturing cycle, start a new one. So in some ways, there are conflicts of interest between India and the U.S. in this, in, in, in this space. You know, so, uh, but if they really want a stable Indo-Pacific, they need to, the, the, the West needs to be a little bit more cognizant of Indian concerns. Just one point uh, regarding sure. energy that uh, Sura raised. I'm sure uh, the EV industry, it's not only lithium that is going to be the actor, 
So they were also looking at hydrogen and green hydrogen, which are as potential, you know, uh, vectors for energy within India. So I'm sure there is a lot of uh, cooperation that is happening on this front, especially with the Quad uh, partners. So uh, that is something that India should seriously contemplate and look at, try to create an ecosystem for green hydrogen, potentially even look at exports. That will definitely benefit us, not only cater to the domestic, you know, uh, uh, requirements, but also as probably an exporter of green hydrogen, given uh, such a huge resource potential, especially with our refining industry. And uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen production should not be a very big uh, deal for us. So I think we should look at that uh, very seriously. And Reliance is looking at it, right? This is, uh, these these companies are very, the, the leaders of these companies are very sharp. They see things that, you know, the media, frankly, just is not, doesn't even think about because the media is staffed with people who are not always the most clued up on, on and, and most forward thinking. The business people, the ones who run large industries, they see things in the future, the ones that have been very successful. And 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 I think the you know the you know Ambani is is particularly uh, prescient in his in his calls, and I think he he sees hydrogen as as one of the major areas of of potential investment, which is why he's willing to put like twelve billion dollars behind it. It's not a small small amount of money. I think uh, Akshob can of course uh, respond and have his comments, and then we can uh, discuss about uh, uh, China considering the Foreign Minister Wangi's visit, and then we can conclude. So, Akshob, hey to you. Yes, just a couple of things, obviously, um, a lot of impact. Um, I, I would actually say that <clears throat> fundamentally in the last few years, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't only want to live in the US-India space, but by virtue of being Washingtonian here, I, that, that's a space I end up occupying or being part of, rather. Uh, um, uh, just if you just think about it, right? Just think about it. The last seventy-five years, what you really have to define the relationship as it's gone from aid to trade, right? Or from the sense of estrangement to engagement. Like Johnson, uh, Indira Gandhi meetings in sixty in the sixties were PL four eighty food subsidies, right? And though that was dangled like a carrot, that was withdrawn when India did not back the United States of Vietnam, which was a transnational thing, which was uh, fundamentally. Um, uh, abhorrent for a lot of people against the violation of another country's sovereignty and other country's uh, human rights. But when that happened, that was pulled away. And if you just think about the first 50 years, we only had three presidents visiting India. Uh, Eisenhower, uh, Nixon, and Carter. And even then, India and U.S. relations in the 70s had another, especially under the Nixon-Kissinger regime, which was, of course, history and now judges them as the proper villains. Uh, but in that last 25 years, you've had five presidential visits, two from Obama and one from each one power. Biden, of course, has not yet made a visit, but that could change. You have to see the kind of engagement that's going to happen. And in the fact that, you know, Surya touched on record exports at 400 billion this year, um, I think 113 of that was largely just from the United States alone. Uh, the Indian United States trade partnership around 150. Look, there's no trade deals just yet. And that, that's because a lot of other issues, right? One is there's no political appetite right now in the US for such a trade deal. Um, there's there's also pushback in India in that way, and there's a lot of um, minutiae that needs to be solved. Market access, um, you know, India's GSP got withdrawn in 2019. That's something that the Congress has to reinstate. So, uh, but we've had uh, the the restart of the trade partnership forum when Catherine Tai visited uh, the USTR visited India in November, um, and all of a sudden you've seen 
small, small things happen. Like Alpha Rahe and uh, cherries from the United States coming in. Uh, mangoes from India, which are very, very sacrosanct and worshipped in the US, had been completely kept aside. Uh, mangoes in the United States come from Mexico. Uh, real pulp, no fiction there. So what, what's really going to happen right now is more and more, uh, you know, and what TPF is going to do is kind of erode some of the barriers. Now, uh, Mr. Goyal at a summit last year said that he wants by 2030 hopes that the India-US trade can hit a trillion dollars of trade. We're at 150 now and that's still less than one fifth, right? So for that to happen, there still has to be a lot more political appetite to get a trade deal done, uh, to understand that the market of the fundamentally private sector companies understand the potential of India's market as well. And what's happened right now is I know we touched on supply chains as well, because one of the sacrosanct foundations of the quad is resilient supply chains. Because what COVID did is fundamentally show a couple of things. One is that you cannot have a system where things that slow down in China mean things that slow down the rest of the world. It's just cataclysmic right now. I mean, uh, we live in a in a sort of market, a global market where we do have uh, alternates. And the fact that China has such a monopoly and a hegemony in the manufacturing space. Um, it just kind of showed that, you know, supply chain disrupt in China meant that supply chain disrupt in the world. And we're still not out of that yet. We still have a supply chain crisis as we saw from Christmas this year. Um, and fundamentally with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, that supply chain crisis is going to get worse uh, right now. We're already seeing countries like Egypt and Morocco and May uh, Turkey, which are reliant on Russian wheat, uh, not getting it. India is still ex imports a lot of its sunflower oil from Russia and Ukraine. And um, that's been another crisis as well. And I'm not even going to touch on the energy part, but we already know about the energy crisis going on. Uh, what's going to happen right now is, as part of the supply chain crisis, India kind of moves. The make in India part is not just what Arthur and Edward Barron self relied. India is not just about, it's not autarky, it's not inward looking, the economy is a far more global, far more intertwined. And we also see that with sanctions. Well, sanctions don't just have one market because it's, it's octopus arms and there are various flows. So you can't just sanction one source and assume that nothing happens, right? Uh, what's going to happen now is, countries have kind of realized that you need a China plus one strategy, China plus four, China plus five strategy. The manufacturing aspect that India did in 2014, 2015, make in India, and make the IO, was because India's fundamental history kind of went from agrarian to services, skipping a lot of the manufacturing, right? Like right from the Green Revolution, and when India went from food, uh, a shortage to food surplus. Um, and then the, the, the 91 reform just, you know, in, exploded India's technological prowess on the state, something that initially Rajiv Gandhi had shown influence for the tech sector and Narasimha Rao and then but just, but we can never really capitalize the manufacturing. Doesn't mean India does not have manufacturing from cotton, jute, silk, tester. Yes, India has a robust manufacturing sector, but, and even for automobiles as well, and we've seen that, uh, Korean, Japanese, car uh, manufacturing, but high-end manufacturing, where you're trying to go in from the semiconductor state, but really, Make Taiwan one of the East Asian miracles. I mean, this is a country that has has had a big. I mean, we're talking about um, India's security threats with, with China. We're talking about the United States being paranoid with China and the Pacific Asian countries. But that's been Taiwan's story. It's always had the dragon over it because it fundamentally China never recognized Taiwan's right to exist as a sovereign entity. Uh, and the United States is also adopted. I mean, the whole world sort of most of the world has a China the one China policy. Uh, but despite that, economically, Taiwan's been able to exceed expectations, including trade with China, which of course a lot of people have used as a benchmark for India, Pakistan, but that's flawed for a different reason. But the semiconductor space with what you have with Foxconn and other things, and 
and and and india's move to high end manufacturing still has to be there but because traditionally if you think about it even in india the southern and the western states have done better the northern and eastern states have been well more derelict on this and that obviously gets into more public administration issues but because of the 12 to 15 million workforce joining every year because of the fact that um you know india's can't india's kind of moved from just a back end of the world industry to now you've got front facing ceos but manufacturing still has to be a core component because since the dawn of the industrial revolution which of course did hamper indian economic growth uh, because of course that was very egregious colonial policies back then what really benefited manchester hurt uh, workers back at home but since the dawn of the industrial revolution manufacturing has been the sacrosanct of country's economy i mean the united states being the world leader in the 20th century was not not manufacturing driven right from you know four automobile engines so in what trump's power and uh, trump's rise to power was largely based on make america great again which was about bringing back manufacturing bringing back holly davidson to wisconsin that obviously won't happen necessarily but china right now is moving to you know uh, as it's gone more affluent and was one of the highest high net worth individuals in the world china is moving to the purchasing power model of uh, moving to a more consumption driven model in, in in the united like the united states so that vacuum of the manufacturing space was was more open for india and i think unfortunately thailand and bangladesh and uh, vietnam have done a better job in occupying that space a little better especially bangladesh if you think about it just you know in the 50 years um our report came out and this is not to segue too much but this is fascinating for a country that was born out of a bloody war uh with with seeds from its western part and overtaken its erstwhile western identity uh you know in 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 you know because of, because it, it never saw itself through a security military state as compared to focusing more on uh individual uh human development aspects as well as manufacturing part i mean this is definitely bangladesh's shining beacon yet but it's definitely punched above its weight in some aspects in manufacturing so i think make an in india happen in bharat because atman and bharat also speaks about look what's happening right now right we're talking about india being re- re- reliant on russia for military it's not reliant it's because india understands that countries are inherently have been transactional right in the past the united states and india never really had the defense partnership for 50 years until now right you talking about it is from 98 there was clinton sanctions for uh, pokhran testing that changed with the civil nuclear deal uh, uh less a uh, decade or uh, day later but that defense partnership wasn't there for so long even if you look at the indian defense scholars will tell you hold on a minute what really helped us in kargil was israeli defense technology in spotting it and the fact that um there's a plant and flexibility with russian manufacturing the fact that you can still do mid fifth generation developments uh you can still get spare parts and uh maintenance from the russian suppliers far easier than you can get from a lockheed and boeing which have different level of scrutinies and rules what also helps with uh in india's perspective there is the fact that india looks at defense manufacturing through like a mutual fund thing right you 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 don't put everything in one basket so you got in russia you got in israel you got france and you got the united states uh in terms of your larger supplies but atmanirbhar bharat also need to hold on a minute it's indigenization of indian defense you need to move more towards indigenization because fundamentally uh you know as for the laws of uh, country industrialization the more sophisticated you know with size of technology and manufacturing the more a defense equipment happens the more, the more defense manufacturing happens the perhaps little less procurement and more uh, and you see that with you know the gilded age in the united states and um russia always had a strong military uh, industrial complex there even in the soviet union era russian military industrial complexes you know on par with anyone else uh and that 
is this indigenization of Indian defense has been a uh, that's part of Atmanirbhar Bharat. So it's not a sense of autarky as well. So fundamentally, uh, right now, as we think about supply chains also being disrupted, right uh, right now with with what what the Quad's also trying to do is in terms of resilient supply chains is one is understanding that it's, it's not just a China hegemony with manufacturing. Two is taking away or mitigating China's carrots in the region, right? Like if you spoke about EV and solar, China's outdone the United States in West Africa for that movement, from Senegal to Mali and everything, providing cheap solar technology. Um, so it, what India is trying to do in that, so what the Quad is trying to do is countries which are, do have the sword of Damocles over the head in terms of ASEAN nations, uh, see a sense of ASEAN codify a sense of ASEAN centrality, which it hasn't been necessarily because even in the Indo, even in the ASEAN regions, we think about it, countries like Thailand haven't said anything because Thailand's own, it, it goes in, again, it goes into Thailand's history of adroit statecraft, how it was the only country not colonized in, in a region which had the British, the French and the Dutch and everyone else. It's, and, you know, countries like Laos and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, Myanmar still very, very heavily dependent on Chinese investments as well. Countries like Cambodia, I have not spoken out. It's only the ones that have direct conflict with the Spratis and the Parasis Islands that are do feel the Chinese hegemony there. Um, and so how do you mitigate that for those countries by promising you know, better investments? And the fact that even what you saw with um, the BRI, it's still more nebulous. No one really knows what goes into those. those. And you've seen how in the region, right from Amman Pumpa's white elephants, right from what happens in Maldives, right from what happens in... Uh, Myanmar and other countries, that there is a sense of uh, Chinese investments being debt traps. So how do you come with cleaner, secure, stronger investments? Which is why everything what the court is at a current level promising is supposed to mitigate the the, 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 the Chinese red envelopes that come in the form of gratuitous investments that, you know, in, you just saw India's foothold in Iran. I know it's a little more West Asia facing. Uh, right from the Chabar port has sort of diminished because China and Iran signed a strategic 25-year partnership where China, of course, also imports a large amount of energy. Uh, Iran needed to counter sanctions as well. You know, and China is a good market. And what does China say in West Asia? What China says in West Africa? What China says in Latin America? You know, we don't care about ideology, unlike the Americans. Uh, we've always given investments based on, you know, a sense of political ideology that they are, are coalesced with. Uh, of course, there are exceptions to that in some parts, of, you know, like Saudi Arabia. But you need road, railway, infrastructure, ports. What's wrong with that? And and I think most countries see Chinese investments. The weaker countries do see, no weaker, sorry. The more countries more amenable uh, uh, to robust investments, do see that as you know an attractive investment. So uh, that's where the asymmetry of power has been, and that's where I think. The Quad, and now even in West Asia, uh, the West Asian Quad, uh, you know, after the Abraham Accords, is trying to mitigate some of that. So I think those are just some thoughts. That I know we've kind of traversed a bit of the globe there, but back to central headquarters. Just, yeah. just one point I just wanted to make. Sure. This, this regarding uh, the startup ecosystem in Europe, for example. So if the sanctions are going to go on for a while now, then uh, I'm sure there is going to be a lot of uh, recession that is going to happen in Europe. And that, you know, paves way for Chinese investment to move in, right? Although Surya just made a point on, you know, people being afraid of investments in the West, if this is going to be the case, if countries get sanctioned left, right and center. So that that is one concern I really have. Uh, if, uh, you know, uh, there is a lot of Chinese investment going into Europe, uh, 
uh, with uh, MSME sector especially that is going to crumble absolutely. This this uh, we saw already in 2008 when the financial crisis happened. So I think that is something that we really need to look out for. And I think that is one area that India and Europe perhaps can, you know, look at and target uh, for any kind of Indian investment or for that matter, you know, skill development programs within India for Indians to go and work in Europe or things like that. So I think there is a lot of scope in, the, in this domain. And I think nobody is talking about this. In fact, in fact, one of the things that, uh, that one of the possible outcomes uh, is obviously a deindustrialization of Europe with high energy prices. Um, and um, you may end up seeing a lot of German companies, French companies, say more so German, looking at uh, shifting base, manufacturing base to China. Uh, that What that essentially will end up doing is that a lot of high-end technologies which exist in Germany, which they've kind of specialized in as, as the lower end of their manufacturing has moved out, they've still kept a large section of their high-end manufacturing. Um, that may end up moving. And if that moves, we know what happens typically with reverse engineering and IP theft. Um, and the, the companies may end up moving their manufacturing to China, essentially held hostage by the Chinese government, just like how now companies are held hostage by, by, the, by the Western bloc politically. Right? They can say that they can pull the, they, they can just grab these assets whenever they want. The Chinese can easily do the same if those units are based in China. Um, so this is a very dangerous shift which could happen. And that all that will do is further develop uh, Chinese capabilities against not just the United States, but also, you know, it's, a, it's adversaries in the neighborhood. Um, a small example of this, Russia is going to find it difficult to export, to expand its LNG export capacities, uh, capacity across across the uh, its coast, because some of that liquefaction technology, where they turn gas into liquid and put it onto the ship, that that technology they have still not mastered. Even the Chinese have not mastered it. There are a few German companies that are particularly good at this, and a few American companies that can do it. Um, you would have thought that given, um, you know, Russia's technological capabilities in other areas or China's capabilities in certain areas, they would have mastered this by now, but they, they haven't. So they're dependent on this, this technology. Now, these are things which would be in the eyeline of, of, of Beijing and Moscow in the long run. Um, so this is just one example, but I'm talking about even other high-end technologies within quantum computing and and other areas that, uh, or even even the um, uh, biological sciences space, you know, the Germans are particularly advanced in this in this biotechnology and biological sciences. So these things, if they start moving abroad, it uh, and into into China, it, there will be serious problems, and they don't want they don't they really don't want uh, that to. Ha I, I would assume the U.S. would be cautious of that happening. Uh, how will they prevent it? I actually don't know, I, because they, I think they've got themselves into a bit of a mess. Because if you have a deeper, you either have two options: you have um, high inflation that persists over the next two years, or you end up with a recession that that really 
with high some with reasonably high inflation for the next two years, right? Maybe less inflation than if you have uh, than if you just if the if you keep pumping the market with money. The Europeans want to keep printing money. They want to finance their their energy uh, bill, new energy bill that they've got. I mean, the, the, how long can they keep doing this? I really don't know. I, I think that Europe is on the is on the precipice right now. It's going to take something very special to pull them off this. I don't know what it's going to be, but if you start seeing a structural decline of Europe, um, what Samir you were saying about Chinese companies, in some way or another, they will try and grab their share. And the Russians are not going to be far behind because they will be able to fracture Europe politically eventually in the long run. And the Chinese will do do the do that work of of going in to to, to grab the assets or the technology or the IP, whatever it may be. So this this, this is actually going down the, the future. Like if you go back into the past, Europe was always fractured, right? In fact, a lot of its innovation came from the fact that it was fractured and there was a lot of competition between countries. It's going back to that. But you're actually you, before you get back to the healthy competition side uh, of things, you're going to go down the, the rabbit hole first before you can dig yourself out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get on China, but I'll just uh, refer to a very, since uh, Surat talked about quote unquote a fractured Europe. I remember this remark by somebody who said that if the European Union, and just a remark I'm making up, not my remark, somebody else's, that if a European Union is economically and politically not that uh, uh, capable, because I remember an, uh, an article published in ORFI, I always talk about it, uh, that uh, the EU is the new NAM. It was by, I think, Angad Singh Chaudhary. So very interesting article. And if the EU becomes the new norm, uh, interestingly, then somebody suggested, I think Roger suggested, that EU can be bifurcated into West EU and the East EU, or maybe Central East EU. But again, that's a, a figment of imagination for fun I just raised for the viewers, listeners, and the panelists. So let's get on China. Now, um, I'm really happy that we have pivoted our discussion and centralized on China and Chinese concerns. Um I completely understand the fact that when the foreign minister Wang Yi came to India, and I also related to this funny development on Twitter and social media where I see Chinese embassies posting the content of uh, a prominent news channel where a particular anchor is basically heckling <laughs> at a particular US professor. But that's a different game altogether, uh, which is really good for Indian media PR. <laughs> but anyways, so the foreign minister visits India and uh, uh, the responses by Dr. Jashankar have been quite clear about how they look at the China relationship. It's very evident that it is not a normal relationship. He says that if China, can, uh, of course, he doesn't say that, but he, it's very implied that if China says that India's foreign policy should be, quote unquote, independently guided, which in many ways it is anyways, then in then China should also do the same. It should not be based on recipro recipro reciprocities of other countries, right? How they shape China's interest in that sense. So, I mean, that's a statement which was given by Dr. Jashankar, and I'm just trying to record it. So let's start on this, and then we'll conclude first. So, Akshay, the question is to you. Uh, how, do, how would the U.S. look at this development of the Indo-China meeting in the sense that, you know, negotiations are still happening on the military front, and we know that unless... Uh, uh, the status quo ante is not received. I don't think, in my view, uh, any larger development will happen. We also know how the U.S. has cooperated with India on handling with China as far as the 
whole Galvan clash was concerned in 2020. So how do you see it? And then, yeah. Yeah, so a couple of things there, right? Uh, firstly, um, right now, given Washington's uh, preoccupation and largely global occupation of the crisis in Ukraine, uh, anything that deters that, deters anything that does not that 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 is towards a quote unquote a peace process or anything that's sta- stability sort of welcome because at some point there are only even for you know the mighty super there's only so much balls up in the air that one can handle. Uh, while yes, China still poses a largely hegemonic threat in the Indo-Pacific region, which is now sacrosanct to Washington. Um, they would kind of welcome this sort of a uh, little uh, surprising diplomatic overture that came from Beijing, not from New Delhi, it came from Beijing. You see Wang Yi right now, also in Nepal and Kathmandu, so it's sort of a South Asia sort of, uh, you know, uh, outreach. Um, that's the first part. The second part is, uh, I, I think, what if you look at the, the kind of comments that are coming, if you came out from uh, the Indian uh, establishment, uh, was very, very similar to what traditionally the you know, in the last 15 years, where China has become the largest security threat, it, the way the commentary spirits of something like Islamabad is like, can't have a normal relationship until, you know, the terror talks don't go hand in hand. Can't have a normal relationship in this. And that's now become with border disputes, border clashes. The fundamental thing is, look, I, I think uh, if you look at uh, what, uh, you know, Chinese experts in Delhi and Indian diplomats in Beijing have said, said, look, Prime Modi actually really believed in, in, in a possible... China dialogue, right? And this came from his own economic incentive when he was chief minister of Gujarat and made trip to Shenzhen and Guangzhou and, and wanted to get to investment. Then Xi had come to Delhi many times and he had made trips to Beijing, including the, the Xi'an trip, uh, you know, uh, to Xi's hometown. Uh, there, of course, you had the Doklam standoff, which of course was, the, you know, diplomatically was a very significant way of handling it, right? Like, uh, uh, and you thought that, all right, you had the Wuhan summit, which is long before COVID became COVID. Uh, Wuhan summit was known as, you know, the, the one where Modi and Xi met and, and at the reset. And then uh, the, the follow-up recent Mamlapuram. In a lot of ways, uh, I think Modi really wanted to see it as this uh, Kissinger-Nixon moment, you know, like a detente with China. Even though India-China relations were never needed that they thought they were just never... It, it, it was, you know, it, it was a belief of walking through gum at the same time. That is, you know, that the fact that the economic trade relationship had not been impacted while the border disputes had never been settled, right? Right from, you know, uh, over, over years. But there was an assumption that, look, there's never been a sense of fighting across the border. There, you know, the Nantula Pass has been okay. The, the Makmohan line has never been, you know, there's been issues on Arunachal. There's been issues on uh, some other parts of the line. But there's never been an... Uh, uh, something that can't be handled. And, and, and after Doklam, when you thought you had Wuhan and Mamlapuram, and then Galwan, of course, was the height of COVID, and while China was still reeling from one of the worst crises ever, that, of course, has just angered the psyche for so many people. It was, it, it was sort of a crisis of confidence with any sort of economic bonhomie with China that people saw possible. Right? That shattered it to the point where uh, in 2017, 2018, if you hear what some of the leading diplomats would have, would have said was, oh, India in BRICS uh, precludes it from looking as anti-America and India in Quad prevents it from looking as anti-China. And now that's um, fundamentally uh, right from the fact that India um, did not mince any words with the, the clashes in Galwan. Uh, it was far more brutal than what people expected. It was uh, a you know, violation of a lot of people's territorial integrity. It was 
What also what happened after that was, of course, you saw the exodus of Chinese companies in from you know TikTok, ByteDance, uh, getting their boot out, and many other uh, companies uh, with Huawei also trying to buy for five G. That kind of got mitigated because for many times in the United States, China has been seen as look, um, you know, small yard high fence. That is, they'll post Trump administration, Biden looked at it as a small yard high fence. And what do I mean by that? It's like <clears throat> they'll be engaging with China economically. But there'll still be the security threat that China poses, particularly with tech companies. <coughs> and um, India has now gotten that as well with China. That there will, there will be the, the trade, albeit has gotten diluted, but it hasn't been cut off completely. It hasn't. There's no been no downgrading in diplomatic ties like with Pakistan did post 2017. But that sense of economic rapprochement that was belief that was there has now been shattered. Plus, of course, COVID has not helped China's cause in any sense, no way as well. And and India has now become a far more vocal member of the Quad. Even though it's never, one could say the Quad is never about China, but everything about it is a China, right? With free, you know, a free and open Indo-Pacific rules-based international order for democracies. It's kind of like a, you know, name the elephant in the room is always a dragon, you know. Um, and and I think that's where India now takes a first stance. I mean, so why this thing is very important to put into context is <coughs> it's not not a reset, right? It's a it's Beijing's overture. I think the sense that you get from Delhi, as you rightly spoke about at the start of this um, call, is <coughs> forgive me, is that with the foreign minister making a statement that he did was exactly what you would have seen for comments from Islamabad in the past. That you know you cannot you know forget about border disputes and border skirmishes and pretend that you know you can't wash away with this. And I think Galvan has still scarred in a lot of ways, and um, there's still a lot more unresolved issues within just the immediate 2020 issue, let alone the larger frameworks in 62. And I think what that's going to mean is I, the way I also saw Wangi's visit was to try and see where India is going to be with the BRIC summit and the RIC summit. Don't forget China is playing host this year to the BRIC summit, which also will be more interesting for the global community now because Russia is uh, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in, in the eye of the storm. And uh, if you look at what Medvedev from Russia was just saying, oh, there's a new Russia, India, China, quote unquote, it's an axis, I think, happening, which of course is not exactly true, but um, which means that if, if if the BRICS summit has to continue with the way it has, Wang Yi sort of had to kind of uh, iron out whatever he could iron out before getting a sense of what the BRICS summit is going to be. Because don't forget, India and the US will have a two plus two in April. Uh, there will be the Quad summit in Japan. Um, to ensure that India's participation in the BRICS is not unencumbered by Galwan, which it, you know, and how it will go on. And don't forget, India is still part of SCO, uh, which has Pakistan as well, um, and all the Central Asian nations, and that is largely BRI-based investments driven there. So I think what's going to happen is um, this is sort of what I would see as sort of setting the, the notion for BRICS and RIC, but it's not a reset. There's still more issues unresolved, and it's not a one Mamla Prabhu said, I don't see a Modi G thing happening right away, but that could change. So, uh, that's so I think I'll leave that for now. I guess uh, Surya wishes to raise some points, he can do so. Yeah, followed by Samir, followed by Saurabh. Saurabh, you can give the follow, uh, final remarks and then we can conclude. I think, uh, uh, discussing about the dragon in the grizzly dragon bear of Montana is important. So, Surya, you go ahead. Absolutely. Um, just a few final comments. I mean, uh, picking up from where Akshob uh, left off, I think when we look at what China's plans are for, for the future, you know, in some ways it, it is 
it's got to a very interesting demographic point where you know the average age is in its forties and forties. Um, it's it's ridden this manufacturing and export wave for nearly thirty years. Um, it's kind of edged ahead of the world using the COVID crisis in many ways um, to kind of get within touching distance of the U.S. Um, and it still intends to retain, um, you know, hegemony over certain key strategic supply chains globally to make sure that they they still are the the the, the central pole, um, which can kind of be the lever everywhere and can kind of expand geopolitically on the back of its 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 economic entrenchment globally. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's going to look more inwards. Uh, it's going to focus significantly on its domestic consumption. Um, there are still uh, very large, you know, 70% of its population is still not wealthy. Um, when we look at the 30% of the 1.5 billion, that's a very large number, which is kind of what we see as the prosperous China. There's a very large section of China, which is not prosperous as yet. It's kind of got a lot of its basics in order for those people um you know the, the government has made sure it's uh you know that they're pakka houses as we say in india for them um they're the water connections and, and kind of what india is doing now many in many ways the chinese have already delivered over the last 20 years but beyond this you see a slowdown in the real estate space, you see a slowdown in, 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 in certain areas. So they kind of want to focus on domestic consumption. That was something that Xi Jinping even talked about earlier. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was two or three years ago, he was he, he kind of was discussing this. So um, you, you probably will end up seeing a slightly more inward-looking China, but an inward-looking India as well, which is willing to also engage deeply with the West. If the West is willing to, to kind of... Um, depart from the 2005 idea, which is kind of still lurking about of, of a G2 world, right? Um, it's fascinating that in the US, when they, 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 there was this idea floated when China was around a $3 trillion economy in 2005. Brzezinski came up with this idea back then, because they looked at China from the long term, and they saw their own investments in China, and they saw what trajectory that was going to take. And that trajectory actually it panned out exactly how they expected in many ways, that they strengthened China's hands through heavy investment in technology transfer. And also they knew what China was going to do with, with the technology and IP. Um, they have not actually articulated anything of, 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 of that kind for India. They, perhaps in many ways, they do not think that in, in the US, they, they, they do not think that India is going to match China in the future, even though India is probably at the same level where China was in 2005 which is actually a very telling sign. I think that should be an indicator for India that it has to manage its 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 affairs using, uh, by, by securing itself, managing its natural resource supply chains, uh, developing its own manufacturing base, and, and, and where possible, creating interdependencies both in the Indo-Pacific and, and beyond. So um, what does this mean when, when you look at China's engagement with India? I think recently, uh, you know, Wang Yi's visit, perhaps, I think, that there's one problem with, you know, to taking a step back, I think there's one problem that the CCP in general has. They're not able to assess the mood in democracies very well uh, because they tend to be very closed off. So despite all their capabilities in many other spheres, they do not understand 
uh, at least many times, they, do, they don't understand how much domestic pressures can actually in, influence democratic outcomes within the foreign policy space. So um, the anti-China sentiment that, that developed from 2020 is not something that they could really comprehend in, in many ways. Yes, the people have, were, were keen to kind of shun Chinese goods for the short term, but they kind of got back onto it because it is a low-income country. Uh, and, and China does have that very affordable price point for its products. But at the same time, uh, the sentiment has not died down, the anti-China sentiment in India. And I think that the U.S. also should be aware that the anti-Western sentiment that the press has been kind of fomenting in the country through their very vitriolic attacks against democracy and, and, and the way this country functions is not really uh, something which which will go down well in the long run for for Indo-US the Indo-US relationship despite what Akshob is saying is that you know it's it's stable and it's on the upswing there there will be some pressures domestically to kind of stay away in certain ways and manage the relationship with the US as much no obviously not in the same way that that India deals with China but like you know there will be a certain degree of caution so all in all like you know when when you see how uh, coming back to the point about China i think that there, the Chinese and Russian angle, which is that, oh, you know, India is kind of now on on the Russians uh, on their side in this this battle to reorder the world. I don't think anybody were any any capable uh, diplomat or politician in India will believe this. They know that this is not the case; that they have to just carve out their own niche. Um, and these are growing pains, and that's what, exactly what I would like to term it. These are growing pains for India um, as it kind of establishes itself on the world stage. You start becoming a serious player when you are in that four to six thousand uh, dollar per per capita sort of income, even if you're a very large country like India. Then you 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 know you're in that five seven trillion dollar sort of space. You can really start pulling some more levers. And it's not just about the notional value, as we have seen with this crisis in Ukraine, and we, as we have seen over the last 20 years since China joined the WTO. It is about how many and to how many interdependencies you have created across the world, and you've cultivated, and how much leverage you can exercise through this. And no financial model which looks at company uh, returns, revenues, or longer-term sort of GDP outlooks can ever compensate necessarily for for this because scale has its own value and it it it's scale and 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 market share and that's exactly what the chinese have mastered india should be able to master that in some areas and and, and cultivate that um and the quad is a good platform to get india to do this but it requires it requires its partners and especially the United States to come on board. And I think that there's a degree of hesitancy that exists at the moment. That needs to change. What will change it? I'm not so sure because Akshob talked about a hesitancy about a, you know, sort of trade deal with the U.S. Trade deal aside, that, that's, that's not exactly necessary. It's about investments. It's about creating, uh, about the U.S. feeling that, look, there are some areas where we can be dependent on India. They're happy to be dependent on China. At least in many areas, they're not. They're actually cutting tariffs on Chinese goods. But they're not doing this with India, and that that requires a very serious discussion, which I don't see happening, and I don't see any discussion in the press either on this. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's not not the most positive note to end things on, but I I do hope that this changes.
if you want to have a materially beneficial, mutually beneficial sort of relationship and you want it stronger in the long run. Yeah, I think Samir will make his remarks. Just, uh, um, I would say, a very accidental welcome to Rishabh. So what we'll do is that, uh, Saurabh and Rishabh, you can make final remarks. And Samir, you can just jump in fast so that we can conclude. But I'll be anyway, having to go. But thank you for hosting yeah. this. And um, I'll be joining you next time. Cheers. Definitely. Definitely. Thanks. Was happy to have you. We'll happy to have you again. Yeah. So, uh, so I think I completely agree with uh, whatever Akshob and uh, Surya just mentioned. I think, uh, to be very honest, there are not many points to be left. But just uh, the fact that if India really wants to be a global player, then the first thing that India needs to sort out is energy security, first. Secondly, uh, look for manufacturing, whichever way it's possible. If you want to establish critical uh, mineral supply chains, then at least uh, do the refining part in Australia or US, bring them back. So in this way, you're all, you'll also be looking at your tariff barriers, right? So there are a lot of things that India needs to do domestically, look at from a very holistic point of view so that uh, it will become easier. So energy security, number one, then uh, access to minerals, number two, and look at uh, technology, please invest in technology. Please uh, invest in research and development. Unfortunately, our funding in science and uh, technology R&D is very little. And I think there needs to be an integrated approach like in China, where you have just one funding agency that is for both uh, defense as well as uh, you know civilian purposes. I think we need to get into the domain in order to accelerate things. So that is all I wanted to say. Thanks. Thank you so much for the opportunity, by the way. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Definitely. And uh, it would be a pleasure to host you again. Um, I think uh, uh, Saurabh can make his remarks and then Rishabh can just come with his final point. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks. So, I'll, uh, I mean, I think enough has been talked about geoeconomics. I'd like to talk about like uh, geopolitics. I would say once the Russia-Ukraine crisis blows over, I think, I think India should have a serious discussion with the US and EU counterparts of, of like what role do they see for Russia in the global politics because I think as Surya said uh, in terms of hedging I mean I think China has has like found a very nice and cheap way to hedge against its neighbors that can be very powerful or its adversaries you know by using Pakistan against India North Korea against uh, Japan and South Korea and now Russia which was you know like not like a ally or a partner or a vessel but i think if russia is sufficiently uh you know like downgraded in terms of its economics and you know like with all of these sanctions biting you know we may seem uh, like we may find russia in a situation where the elites or the people would not like to be a vessel state to china because of history uh and like their own self-perception of uh, you know like russia but they might not have any choice so if that happens, you know, like it would be like like Russia again is a nuclear power. It's a P5 power. So it, it, it is not just like another random country. It is not uh, like so for China can easily use Russia or, you know, co like uh, like uh, push buttons with Russia to create trouble in Europe or uh, to U.S. interests elsewhere. So U.S. would then have to like either make a Take a choice that you know like 
European countries, you make a choice. You take care of your own security. I am out and I'll focus more on China. But that might be very difficult given the you know historical linkages that US has with Europe. So even now, you know, like, like, Russia, like the US is not as involved in terms of arms and supplies, or I mean, it's more into sanctions. But I think we need we need to have a serious discussion because it's not even in India's interest to have a Russia that's in, like very significantly dependent on China. I think China may want that with Russia. But I think it's not in our interest. And I would say at least in terms of uh, like, uh, like uh, what was talked about, you know, if there is prolonged recession and economic crisis in Europe, how that might help China or Chinese companies. I think the uh, like the level of being naive that uh, European countries in the US were in the aftermath of uh, the 2008 crisis uh it's not there anymore i think i think these countries realized that in like china was buying their ip and their companies on the cheap you know we have a very very famous example of syngenta like a like a major biopesticide company in europe which was uh like uh, taken over by china for very cheap i think so china you know like uh used their ip for their own companies and so i think the countries will be more careful this time but if they are drilling under economic pressure. It might not be as easy to, you know, say, you know, like we worry about China, but we, but they also need to, you know, like not have a recession. So maybe India can swoop in. Maybe India, along with other countries, can maybe use an example that, hey, you know, Europe or West, you may be skeptical of Chinese investments given past precedent. So how about I invest in your country or you offshore some of your uh, industries to India so that you know it, that the IP stays with you somewhat and you can take advantage of cheap labor or the cheap industrial uh, ecosystem that hopefully would be with India in due course of time as was the case in China with China like 15 years ago. Um, I mean that's that's essentially what uh, I would like to say but I, I think we need to have a discussion with the Western counterparts about how much of a hedge do they see Russia against China? I think because India can be like a bridge between Russia and the West because I don't see like any uh, normalization happening between Russia and the West, you know, anytime soon given the scale of uh, like conflict, even if in the wildest of dreams there is a change of regime in, in uh, Moscow. I think these things tend to like remain as a scar for a very, very long time. So it would be very difficult for any Russian leader, even after Putin, to you know just say, "Hey, let's just forget what happened in 2022 and just let's start over." So I think it is in our interest to uh, like like they pick some brains uh, with our friends or allies in Europe and uh, US. Great. So um, I know that uh, Rishabh is joined a bit late, but it's fine. Uh, Rishabh, you can add your final points, and then I think we'll conclude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First of all, sorry, I I, I, was, I joined late. Uh, had a long weekend, um, and could not join in on time. But uh, I mean, whatever I've heard or whatever I've followed till now, um, I I think uh, I agree with most people. I think whatever the points that you know Samir and Surya made. Um, 
it's absolutely spot on and even what was sorob was saying that i think for future reference of a future uh, you know tra- tra- the trajectory of uh, russia and china relationship is i think has to be our main focus right um it's it, it it cannot be even our discourse cannot be just a binary of you know trying to hedge and balance against the west and the rest or the west and the east right we have to be more or more aware uh and more perceptive towards the shifts happening near us right and i do not for one think that this whole you know i mean if there is no doubt that russia and china are closer and will have more incentives to be closer uh than it had before right but if you are working from an assumption you know see as a individual you can work from the assumption that oh this dragon bear is happening right but as a country it's not in your interest or it is the onus is on you right to not treat it as a foregone conclusion so to speak right if you have for example it's you know for it's in your interest that the two countries even though they might be you know automatically getting together right i mean think from the chinese perspective they know that ultimately india and the west are aligning more closely the pace of course may differ right it may go up it may go down but you know that that broader alignment is happening right so the chinese from the chinese perspective or from the russian perspective they do whatever they can to ensure that from time to time they come and you know they kind of pat you in the back and say hey listen you know what are you doing right and kind of give you a kind of a nod or so to speak to you know basically letting you know that i mean that can be through overtly you know kind of threat etc or it could be through you know luring of so to say you know this grand bargain or something like a reset or whatever right so i'm giving you some incentive so to speak now this is i think you know i mean of course there are differences but the basic point remains that india does not and cannot afford to have a russia china pakistan axis that will be devastating right i mean i would just like to think and i've been thinking about this for like at least last one week or so i mean if you are indeed saying that the russia china de facto military alliance so to speak will become like a i mean it's it's going to get stronger right and of course pakistan being in the china's axis as it is right now right if you are saying that this is the reality or this is something which is going to happen in future for sure right then kind of picture or paint a picture for you know for yourself and others that if russia china pakistan you know axis does come to fruition what kind of an asia do you think it will be for india and how much do you think the us or any other country will be able to help you and in what ways right to feel secure in asia in not i mean especially in the subcontinent right i mean combine Russia's diplomatic power which by the way is going to stay no matter how how much people in the west talk about so combine Russia's diplomatic power its residual military power right it's still going to be a very powerful military mil- country militarily china's economic diplomatic power so to speak and pakistan undying devotion to hurt india right i mean it can be a very you know i mean it, it it does sound like you know a threat that we should be you know uh, aware of or or be careful of right so my only concern is this that i don't think that you know if we take all our actions from this assumption that you know the russia china pakistan you know the, that that battle is lost so to speak right and we don't do anything or we don't even try so to speak then i think i, I think we are going to look at look at uh, asia in a very uh, myopic way also i think we also have to look at globalization i i, I saw ted 
TED talk by Shiv Shankar Menon. Very interesting. Uh, he this was I think he just shared recently, and I think a lot of people are also now considering the fact that a lot of their assumptions about the future of all these kind of alignments, realignments, and even relationships are based on the fact that globalization is you know not going anywhere. I'm not so sure, right? And so are I mean, a lot of other people. I mean, again, this is not to say it's not to announce the demise of the globalized world, but there is a certain pullback, and there will be challenges that will come with it, right? So, I think in that ways, you know, we have to kind of recalibrate our thinking to even include these ideas. There has to be greater attention, as I said, paid to what Russia and China are actually doing, rather than what people think. they are doing see let's be honest in our discourse how many of us actually follow a russian expert who resides in russia who who looks and reads and talks you know uh, uh uh you know about russia and what the russian people are thinking or what the russian elites are thinking so i think and, and same goes with the chinese to some extent of course there are some experts who do that but in our general mainstream discourse there you find none right so again i think it is in our interest to make sure that we understand these issue from a very independent basis right take a very kind of head strong or like an independent view because this is very important right this is not just about west and the rest and i understand that our social media interaction including myself you know sometimes you know uh, we fixated on that because precisely because we have the western commentators or the western press or the western diplomats all the discussion and debates around them because that's who we have to interact with we don't we are not interacting with the russians we are not interacting with the russian media i mean technically sometimes we don't we can't even do that now because you know there is censorship and what not but that you know you get my point right so that is one i think the russian this whole dragon bear thing yes it is happening but what are we going to do about it what are our options so to speak right so that's one and just to finish i think something which surya was also pointing at um a lot of times when you know um people talk about public opinion right public opinion as not being a factor in 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 these relationships and saying that you know the us will or the us government and the indian government will you know kind of ignore these general trends and carry on with what they are doing and you know uh, and i agree with them right that, that public opinion does not have that much of an impact especially in india because you know we don't have levers or uh, or or kind of you know platforms through which these can be articulated there are no pressure groups so to speak i mean there are but you know again these are not that consequential uh, but in america that can be the case but overall even though i understand that i think yes in the long run the adults who are in charge so to speak will take care and will have these dialogues in a very mature fashion maybe even privately but i will say that you know public opinion does matter right you can make and you can keep on these you know you can make this argument that no 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 this is not coming from american official channel this is just western media the western press etc but that's not the point it's not like you know that you know continuous coverage or framing of issues such as that if it has an impact in the long term two years three years from now let's say again as sort of rightly pointed out this is not going away the sanctions are not going to be you know all sanctions not going to be taken off there's no going there's not going to be a eu turn on russia so to speak at least it will take years right so that normalization will not happen and china and india will find trust me i mean even though we 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 we've been talking about how the chinese indians have sub some the chinese etc etc which is i mean which is great from an indian perspective but 
ultimately they will be we will find common ground on russia a, a lot of times and i think that will be portrayed in a in a fashion um which i don't think a lot of indians would like even in the indian ruling uh, ruling elite so to speak or the diplomatic commentary right i i i just saw a tweet by uh, ambassador rao right uh, nirupama uh, uh, so uh, uh, she 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 pointed out that you know this is also becoming this hectoring from the west is also becoming a little you know kind of tedious so to speak right and even i think uh, professor happymon jacob he also i think remember i remember him saying this that you know our strategic autonomy yes we are you know is constrained and limited by the russian dependency or our dependency on russian weapons but in the future there may be a point that you know uh if a partner or an ally or any actor is kind of restricting your choices through whatever means right uh then again that is also a restriction or limitation of your strategic autonomy to some extent right so i think public opinion yes it does not matter now especially in the short term right things will cool down and so will the media etc but again remember and again i keep saying this remember the indian media's coverage in the nepal uh, uh, earthquake uh, crisis so to speak and how after that the opinion against india has just gone from bad to worse right and that has become a challenge by the way in uh, for india in nepal's political circles right uh, ashley talis remember was talking about disenchantment in at the capital hill uh, or at the executive branch or the legislative branch when it comes to india right again i would like to just remind american counterparts or american friends that that disenchantment can happen two ways right it's a, it's a two way street right it can happen i mean i'm not saying it i'm not saying it as a threat or some something somebody who you know who i'm not saying it like you know like like you know kind of right back at you kind of kind of thing i'm basically saying that you know it can happen on on both sides and you you know and most of us know that there are elements both on the right and the left in india who would like nothing more than to sabotage the american indo american relationship right and there are people uh, in both in both sides so to speak so maybe we have to be careful on that we have to emphasize and we have to articulate our interests and our positions very well which i think the government is doing and yeah ensure that we also uh, articulate uh, as to you know what is our future action and what are our main goals i think then probably you know a lot of people who have been misguided uh, from the fact that see a lot of times when you know when wangi's visit happened yesterday i think um, a lot of people were very genuinely wanting that there has to be some sort of a if not a reset but a rapprochement so so to speak so that you know there is dialing down of tension which is a good thing but again i would say that it's 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 something which india alone cannot do it's a very difficult thing to do right i mean if you're having a if you're having an honest conversation on de escalation etc etc there will be pressures from the public uh as to what what is the technicality what is you know what are you actually conceding what you're not conceding so exactly public opinion matters the government cannot be seeing as to conceding anything even patrolling rights in some friction points right especially after what has been happening so public opinion in that sense whether it is the china relationship whether it is the russian relationship or less so in the russian in the russian's case but all these things matter in the long run and uh you know in that sense we have to be you know willing to make that case in a very much more clear manner 
but also study other changes more carefully than we have like especially the russia china alignment so to speak and the possibility of what that would do to a pakistan right and what you know i mean they also feel i would say they are also feeling a little giddy at that prospect because as much because they know that the us relationship is lost i think that is why you see prime minister imran khan or anybody else if he is gone today or tomorrow you know that it's gone it's it's not something it's in our interest yes you can try to balance it out but it's something which is to some extent you know uh, beyond salvage uh, salvaging so they are very much dependent on china of course maybe russia will be too in some economic or financial ways but let's be honest right in the, the demise or be, i think there are people in india and elsewhere are too premature to to talk about the demise of russia they are not going anywhere even if okay let's say there is a regime change do you think a western uh, kind of a backed or a pro western candidate will survive in russia they will not right maybe there will be somebody else who's more balanced etc etc but you know let's not look at those kind of fantasies or you know etc but ultimately focus on yes you know russia is weakened etc and russia will be weakened further to to my opinion as well but it can be entirely possible you're seeing that they are also dialing down their rhetoric uh, preparing their public for also you know a kind of a withdrawal a kind of like a you know like so to speak giving themselves an off off ramp and i think even the western countries should realize that listen this is also a time where they also need to take a step back and make sure or give putin kind of an off ramp so to speak uh because i think in the end it will save the ukrainian people they have fought well and yes there will be problems yes there will be tough conversations to had when it comes to what to do with the eastern eastern eastern, eastern ukraine for example but i think we can all agree that you know uh, that will be the best i mean that can be something that can be solved through dialogue maybe the west can offer to relieve some pressure etc etc but that's the basic point here and and for indian perspective let's look at the russian relationship with china more closely than we have been doing because i think that is the crux of our you know uh, thinking and that will be key for us to understand as to what and how much should we hedge and balance against you know these two poles that are emerging today so that's it i'm sorry i i i i I I would have loved to heard hear other arguments that were made etc on the panel but yeah maybe next time thank you yeah just to add on that since you made some very interesting points and and then we are done because i just have some because you raised about information warfare and the and the the way it affects governance and domestic political consensus as we know so i think uh, i remember shivshankar menon coming on off the cuff and he discussed a long time back that it's happening in the developed countries now of course he had it in india and that but i don't think that's happening in india in that particular sense still because india's political discourse is very very different it's not so quote unquote monolithic or very very obvious as everybody thinks it's very diverse so not getting on india but i think with the developed countries first of all i think it's some it's a case that definitely the us is trying to consolidate its relationship with europe but there is a primal not a primal but at least a secondary sense of multipolarity which is reflective even in the discourse of the policy measures that europe wants to do right so i think i think we know that information warfare does affect public opinion for example it might not affect the governments in that sense largely 
but it might affect the stakeholders who will become the stakeholders of the government within the government or those who will become the quote unquote stakeholders and i think it has a it has to do with the genealogy just, of what yeah i mean i mean what, just to just to add a small point here remember a lot of yeah. western commentators keep saying that it is the nostalgia which is holding the indians back the indian elites yeah. the indian people right so you are conceding the argument right in in that sense of course when it's convenient to you to explain india's decision that mm-hmm. yes the sense of nostalgia and some public opinion is contributing to india's position to kind of hedge and not totally go against russia so to speak of course we know that's not the case there are multiple complex yeah. reasons but you concede yeah. the point yourself right so when you are conceding that this can be a factor in this sense then why can't it be factor the other way around when it comes to you know us in the indian us relationship in the long term right so that's my only point i'm not saying it's going to be fatal or it's going to be you know very uh, problematic yeah. but it it will increase challenges right yes. they will increase their rhetoric you will have in your domestic peop, you know uh, peop, you know uh, uh, arena see remember all gov- even this government or any other government they're not going to be this popular or strong forever you may see the next government so to speak in india not being you know a majority maybe it's a coalition government then you will have pressures yeah then you'll have pressures from different uh, players within that coalition right that mm-hmm. why you're listening why you're doing this etc etc and then that, my point is that once foreign policy issues become a part of your domestic issue and rhetoric then you have incentives to kind of always harangue or go against uh, uh, you know a certain country saudi arabia is one country or one relationship which has entered the in, you know saudi uh, sorry uh, the the us domestic politics in in some way where you see mm-hmm. that there is an effect of us public opinion uh, you know having a large impact on the relationship or the trajectory of the relationship right yeah. the saudis again and that is has led to some problems between them right so i think we have to look at it from that angle and just not dismiss it right away that's all i'm saying right you know no everybody everything will be fine etc let's not be that yeah. uh, you know overtly confident as well yeah yeah and to just conclude fast i think what happens is that when the domestic populace and the stakeholders and the government all these three constituents of the state in that particular sense to understand foreign policy engage and understand what's happening i think it's a lot about information overload and also disinformation overload but i think for that we need a separate discussion on information warfare because uh, to be very fair on information warfare i have been criticizing also but i think that information warfare is just too far fetched sometimes or also sometimes too fetched but anyways it's a thing altogether uh, and uh, this is also why despite being with the thing that you know what we need to be careful i think that there are a lot of positive things going to happen in the indo american relations paradigm and it's very obvious it, it happened with the soviets also in some ways dark or good or somewhere so we can say in the wild west way <laughs> good bad and ugly with indian us but i think it's going to be fine for now at least for for this decade in my view so we conclude this discussion i thank surya samir akshob saurabh and the special cameo of rishabh for this uh, episode of global hint and uh, we uh, are already on spotify anchor google podcasts and other platforms we will be posting nearly all of our interesting global hint ai now and indian integrals episode from season 1 very soon and once the same happens we'll declare immediately till then thank you so much it was a nice discussion with all of you and yes we'll see you all of you next time thank you bye bye